Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp Podcast. The podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 4, Absolute Bedlam. A part of what has always attracted me to the Victorian era is the huge technological and sociological changes that occurred in this age. It was an exciting time for great advancements around the world. With the Industrial Revolution, the work of Jules Verne and inventions such as the cinema meant that the 19th century can be seen like we often look back at the 1950s, full of promise, adventure and creations never seen before. And London was certainly at the forefront. Science, medicine, literature, philosophy and exploration all experienced huge leaps forward during this century in the United Kingdom. And yet one of their oldest institutions remained in what can only be described as the Dark Ages. St Mary Bethlehem Hospital had been founded in 1247. Also known as Bethlehem Royal Hospital, it was originally built to help raise money for the Crusades. Yes, those Crusades. It was operated at a number of locations around London, although during our time period it was outside of Moorfields for the very early part of the 1800s and then torn down. At that time, the facilities were what only could be described as water-damaged and decrepit. A campaign was held to raise funds and Parliament agreed to provide £10,000 for the fund where the hospital would provide permanent accommodation for lunatic soldiers or sailors from the French wars. For some very brief details of the French wars, I highly recommend my last podcast, but that said, I'm using the term lunatic in citing what was said. There could be no doubt that just because the term post-traumatic stress disorder had yet to be defined doesn't mean that those horrific events that those men and women went through had any less of an effect than those experienced by people today. Fortunately, the money was donated although given the conditions in St. Bethlehem, it might have been a mixed blessing receiving treatment there. It was also decided to hold a competition to design the new hospital at Southwark. One of the entrants, possibly, thankfully unsuccessful, although we'll never know, was James Tilly Matthews. Who was James Tilly Matthews? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because James was actually a patient at St. Bethlehem. Yes, that's right, a patient. He had been committed to St. Bethlehem in 1797 and is considered to have been the first fully documented case of paranoid schizophrenia. Keeping his story concise, Matthews had travelled to France in the 1790s in an attempt to avoid the upcoming French wars. While he gained the trust of the French government at the time, by 1793, his affiliations saw him being seen as a double agent, and he was imprisoned for three years. In 1796, the French authorities thought he was simply a lunatic, and he was released and returned to Britain. In London, he was later arrested after writing letters where he accused the Home Secretary of Treason and of varied conspiracies against Matthews's life. 
Now, this is where I arrive at another one of those points where I can see a very odd little historical podcast about what Matthew's called the heirloom. I'll keep a podcast story short here, but Matthews believed that this secret weapon called an heirloom used advanced technology to control people's thoughts and could even kill them by use of magnetically charged air. So sci-fi fans, I think that might be your original death ray, even before Tesla's in that point, I think. Uh, it was therefore unsurprising that he ended up in St. Bethlehem, probably for the best, but getting back on track, making the move was certainly a step in the right direction. In its day, the Moorfield building had been considered as a palace in its architecture and was described as an opulent facility. I do have to opine, though, that having two big statues out the front named Melancholy and Raving Madness appearing calm and angrily changed respectively lend a certain less than positive attitude to the place. Also, when they did move premises, the treatment, publicly known as rotational therapy, was removed from practice to help bring Bethlehem into the modern times. What's rotational therapy? Well, I'm glad you asked that one too. Erasmus Darwin, the grandfather of Charles Darwin, no less, invented this method to help mental patients. If you were selected for this treatment, lucky you, because you would have been taken to a room where you would find a chair in the centre of a small bare room. After being strapped into said chair, cables would be drawn up and you would be suspended in mid-air. At the direction of the attending physician, you would be spun about. Yes, that's right, spun about in the suspended chair. Sure, that wouldn't be the best of feelings even when someone does it to you in an office chair, but how about being spun at more than 100 times a minute? At this point, you might say, well, I'd be throwing up for sure. And apparently, according to the good doctors, this was a good thing. And what I mean is, yes, they wanted you to throw up because the doctors working with this treatment regarded the fact that if you experienced vertigo or vomiting, it was a positive reaction and conducive to your healing. And that's aside from the regular bloodletting from leeches cupping glass therapy, and the inducement of blisters all being used to aid in, for want of a better word, care. The chaotic behaviour of the patients, brought about by their tragic mental conditions all because of treatments like those, saw the nickname of the hospital from the 14th century becoming a distortion of Bethlehem. Bedlam. So the next time you tell a child your room looks like absolute bedlam, or your parents tell you this, now you know where the word comes from. Yeah, room looks like a madhouse. Bedlam became synonymous with chaos and anarchy. We know a great deal about the incurrences in St. Bethlehem because one of their primary sources of fundraising was charging, quote, people of note and quality, end quote. An admission for them to see and visit the patients just like it was some sort of zoo. This practice was banned in the 1770s and saw the income from the poor money box drop 90% in revenue for the hospital. But the reputation was now there as part of the social fabric of London society. But with the decline in social observance, sadly came the worst of abuse. Women and men were kept in separate wings. There were limited toilet, sink and cold bath facilities. 
incontinent patients were kept on beds of straw in the basement. In 1816, they established a wing for the criminally insane. This was a newly created legal category in the aftermath of James Hadfield and his attempted regicide of King George III, which you see my second podcast for that one. But despite this being a new building, there were already problems. The steam heating didn't function properly and the basement levels had problems with damp. Oh, and it gets better, or worse, depending on your linguistic preference, because the windows on the upper levels were unglazed, as in they had no glass. Those in control of the asylum thought that not having windows would help with ventilation and would prevent the build-up of what they used to call, and I quote, the disagreeable effluvias peculiar to all madhouses. Someone finally saw sense in 1816 and had the windows installed, thank God. In 1815, there was a parliamentary committee on madhouses. Yes, that's what it was called. Political correctness wasn't a thing in the 19th century, so madhouses was an acceptable term. A lot of what we know about St. Bethlehem came from this inquiry, but the majority of the information stems from the work of an advocate of lunacy reform, Member of Parliament, Edward Wakefield. Lunacy reform, yes, again, political correctness wasn't a thing. His investigations were at the old Moorfields building, and he reported on the practice of the administration not having any real categories of the patient's conditions and placed patients with those that were thought to be highly disturbed. Many of the patients were constantly naked and actually chained in their rooms. His reports cited one patient in particular, an American named James Norris. A former Marine, James was around 55 years of age when Wakefield met him, and he'd been in St. Bethlehem since 1800. He was apparently suffering from some sort of lunacy, the specifics of which aren't known, but was regarded as incurable. After a number of violent incidents, James was restrained in a device created specifically for him. With an iron ring around his neck, attached to a short chain and then attached to a bar on the wall, James had an iron bar around his body which pinned his arms to his body and more bars running from a bar around his waist and over his shoulders, and these were all attached to an iron bar vertically placed into the wall. So effectively his body's in like a cage, and it's attached to a pole that's attached to the wall behind him, so he can move up and down, but that is about it. Certainly not something that would happen today, and one would think that such a restraint would be something that would occur for a short period of time. James was in that horrifying contraption for 12 years. This scandal fortunately made the public aware of what was going on, enhanced by an illustration in the papers. 
I've posted this on my Instagram account and it's a really shocking picture, even if it is just a sketched graphic. That he was held in that fashion for more than a decade, just hideous. Now, with the increased exposure in the papers, in June of 1816, Thomas Monroe, principal physician at St. Bethlehem, resigned. He had been accused of wanting in humanity towards his patients. Not something you want on your resume. Fortunately, he was gone. Now, changes slowly began and new buildings were added from the 1830s to combat the increased admissions and overcrowding that was already an issue at the facility. Like I said at the beginning, there was so much advancement within the 19th century, and this is sadly one of the elements that it didn't have that progression that it should have. And as bad as what happened to James Norris was, it is tragic that more than half the population were subjected to blinkered discrimination that could see them put in this hellhole. Women were typically locked up in asylums for any number of reasons that today would not be considered by any means a sign of insanity. A woman might have been suffering postnatal depression, alcoholism, dementia or, shock horror, infidelity. But hey, if you can get two doctors to sign off on you, yes, you're being shipped off to an asylum. And if you're thinking that some men did this even when there was no issue and they were simply fed up with their spouse, congratulations, you're absolutely correct. In 1857, 23-year-old Eliza Joselin was working as a servant in a 20-room house. Over the winter, harsh weather conditions meant that a fire needed to be kept in every room to ensure comfort for the family. This would keep any group of servants busy, but what needs to be said is that young Eliza was the only servant in the home. She was responsible for not only the normal housekeeping duties, but also maintaining all those fireplaces. Unable to keep up with the workload, Eliza became stressed and her work suffered as a consequence. And in short measure, the young woman found herself in Bethlehem. She died there at the age of 75. Her whole life was gone in that horrible place because she was worked like a slave. I think I know who should have been sent there instead. As a bit of trivia, the old Greek word for uterus was hysteria. And it is from this that we get the word hysteria. Because, you know, a woman's reproductive system was blamed for their behavior. And I'll leave it at that for you to ponder. Over the century, Bethlehem hosted many patients, so let's hit some of the highlights, shall we? Jonathan Martin grew up as one of 12 children. As a child, he was raised by his aunt and had developed a speech impediment. And after seeing his sister murdered by a neighbour, he was sent to live with an uncle. Apprenticed as a tanner, he was press-ganged into the Navy in 1804. He served until 1810 and then became a Christian preacher and gained a reputation for denouncing the Church of England and disrupting services. In 1817, he threatened to shoot the Bishop of Oxford, no less, and he was sent to an asylum. Escapes and recaptures saw him moved around and then later released. By 1828, he was married and living in York. However, in 1829, Annoyed at the buzzing sound in the York Minster organ, Jonathan hid in the building 
and then set fire to the woodwork in the choir. A great deal of damage was done, but the culprit was soon identified by threatening placards Martin had left on the railings in previous days, including his initials and address. He was insane after all. He should have received a death sentence, but was deemed insane and sent to Bethlehem. He died there nine years later. And he has been described as the most well-known example of a manic depressive arsonist. Having been to York and spent time in the Minster there, I have to say I'm glad he didn't succeed. The building is absolutely magnificent, and if you have a chance, take the time to go and have a look at it. As an aside, one of his brothers, William, wrote a treatise opposing Newtonian theories of gravity. <laughs> so I guess he was kind of the flat earther in the family as well. Edward Oxford was the first person to attempt an assassination of Queen Victoria. Guilty of high treason, he would have been sentenced to death, and yet he was found to be insane and committed to Bethlehem. Eventually, he was discharged on the grounds that he moved to one of the Empire's overseas colonies. So he moved to Melbourne, the capital of the state of Victoria in Australia, changing his name to John Freeman, and now being a house painter, he became a church warden at St. Paul's Cathedral and died in 1900. Okay, so I have been to York, but to St. Paul's? It's actually my hometown. <laughs> I've certainly been there, and if you've ever been to Melbourne, St. Paul's is the big church just across from Flinders Street Station. You can't miss it because it's right there, but it's making it a lot of fun researching this podcast and finding out little facts like that. Our next famous inmate is Augustus Welby Northmore Pugin. I hope I got that right. He was an English architect and he's one of the pioneers of the Gothic revival in architecture and the iconic clock tower that we know as Big Ben. In 1852, he suffered a massive breakdown, leaving him unable to speak coherently or recognize people. Sent to Bedlam, his therapy there meant he eventually recognized his wife, although sadly he died a few months later. Historians do speculate that he was suffering the advanced effects of syphilis because his death came at just 40 years of age. And one last inmate for you, Daniel McNaughton. That's M apostrophe N-A-G-T-E-N. So I'm going to pronounce it McNaughton. Uh, Daniel was a Scottish woodturner that killed civil servant Edward Drummond while suffering paranoid delusions. Edward was the private secretary to Prime Minister Robert Peel, and McNaughton walked up behind him and just shot him in the back with a pistol, tackled to the ground by a nearby police officer before being able to fire a second pistol. Drummond was rushed to hospital where he died five days later from complications due to his injury. Because of his trial and the precedents it did set, his surname became synonymous with criminal insanity in England and other countries in what has become known as the McNaughton Rules. As the century moved on, attitudes towards mental health began to change. Emphasis moved from physical restraint to methods to address mental thoughts and moral management. Dr. T.B. Hislop came to the hospital in 1888 and rose to the physician-in-charge position and brought Bedlam into the modern era, finally retiring in 1911. 
finally the hospital moved premises in 1930 and the bedlam I'm talking about was made the Imperial War Museum in 1936. Bedlam has become a byword for chaos and yet we do need to remember that the people that were incarcerated there were either horribly misdiagnosed or genuinely in need of help. Either way, for decades they endured horrible conditions that would have driven any sane person mad. So here endeth the episode. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening on Twitter at VicGasLamp and my Instagram account is Victorian gas lamp post there probably a couple of times a week and i do it as a bit of an extra aside to the podcast itself speaking of which the next episode will be out in two weeks so keep a lookout for that and i'll see you next time under the gas lamp